Good morning and welcome. As I just shared a minute ago, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. I have the pleasure of working with most of the young adults uh, and all things technology. So if you are new here, let me add my welcome to you. Thank you for taking time out of your schedule to join us, to be with us. Uh, and we're just excited to see what God would have for us uh, today. And so last week, Don spoke about James 1 and James 1, 2 through 12, and talking about trials that have come uh, in our lives. It can be any number of circumstances from uh, health to job situations, from marital to family situations to school and other circumstances we're dealing with. Uh, Trials come in various ways. And as Don said, the only qualification to experience trials is that we're alive. By nature, we all, if we are alive, we will face trials at some point in our life. I've heard it said that we're either going into a trial, in the midst of a trial, or heading out of a trial, pretty much all times. And in each of these trials we face, the circumstances that we're in, we must choose how we'll respond to them. Sometimes we respond well, other times we don't. And as many of you know, Trials can come at you in the least expected times, and so it makes it even harder at times to respond well according to Scripture. And so I want to tell you a brief story of uh, one of the trials I feel like I faced in my life, and it was, uh, as many of you know, throughout my life I've always been a huge fan of sports. I love sports of all type, and a lot of that was because I grew up playing sports. The main sport I played was baseball, and from Little League through high school, my main position was mainly pitcher. I also played some shortstop. Um, but I love, I love just the mental game of pitching, the fact that you're constantly trying to outsmart the other person and trying to work through, trying to figure out, like, what, is, what can I do that they're not going to expect that I can catch them off guard? And as well, I, I, I really love just constantly being involved in action as a pitcher. Other positions, you might go an inning or two without really seeing much action, but pitching, you are there every pitch, every moment of the game. And I remember it was during my sophomore and junior years of, of high school that I really kind of came into my own as a pitcher. I, I kind of pitched from sixth grade on, and it was really those two years in high school that I really started to, um, to really figure it out, uh, to, to know and have my own skills honed, but also just know the craft and art of pitching. And it was that same time of life during my so- between my sophomore and junior years of high school when I came to know Christ for the first time. I began a relationship with Christ between my sophomore and junior year, and so it was during that time that I really started to get involved with, with different Christian activities, got involved in a church, um, and I really started to grow in my newfound faith. And so as I entered the spring of my junior year, I kind of really made it my mission to say, okay, how do I take this newfound faith of mine and apply it into how I'm playing this sport? I really wanted to do the best I could so I can glorify God with what I was doing. I was excited to play at my best and, and give the glory to God for, those th- for that time. And I assumed that magically, because I'm doing this, everything would just go swimmingly. I assumed that it would just be like the best year I've ever had, and it would go well, because I was giving it to God, right? Like, why wouldn't it want to go well? Because that way I can glorify God with, those, with that time. So remember, uh, each game, I, w- I would take time, I would pray, and I would kind of give the game to, the God, to God and say, all right, God, like, this is for you. And I realized about halfway through that year, I remember thinking, this year's going okay, but it really isn't like matching the expectations I had. It really wasn't like meeting me where I, I thought it should be. 
And so that whole spring, I was realizing, man, I, I, something seems off, and I couldn't tell what it was. But something, I just felt like it was a little off each game. And about halfway through the season, I, I, I actually got, um, I did an eye exam and got contacts. I was like, okay, that must be it. Like, it must just be I couldn't see well, and now I'll be all good. Then as the, as the season went on, it continued kind of in this, like, I was doing okay, but not great. I, was, I still felt like something was off, and I couldn't figure out what it was. And then towards the end of the season, I realized, I think I've got some pain in my arm here. So I went to the doctor, and um, I got diagnosed with tendinitis in both my elbow and shoulder. And it really what it was doing is completely killing any speed I would have as I was pitching. I was, I was devastated. I was like, man, I gave the season to you, God. I was trying my best to play for you. And now I have an injury that I can't even like, perform well. Like, what's going on? I thought I was doing everything right. I was praying about what I was doing. I was trying really hard. I was giving it to God. I remember having long, frustrating conversations with God, saying, like, all right, God, like, why, why aren't things going better? Why have, you, why have you caused me to have this injury when I was trying to do my best for you? And you can see kind of my spiritual maturity in that process. I wasn't quite, didn't quite fully get it there. Um, but it was, it was ultimately something I thought I deserved. I thought I deserved to do well. I thought I deserved to, to play well and to play at my best. And in turn, I blamed God for my injury. I blamed God for the frustration I felt in that moment. I blamed God for how I took it out on him in that process. And those are real feelings that I felt. And God didn't meet my expectations of what I expected and what I thought was best in that moment. And ultimately, that frustration came out towards him more than anything. And if you're anything like me, which I think you probably are, one of our human tendencies is when things don't go according to our plan, we tend to blame shift other people or other things or ultimately God. We blame God for when things don't go according to our plan in that process. And I, see, I think you see this throughout human history. You see it, for example, in apologetics. One of the most common questions in apologetics is why does God allow bad things to happen? It's an age-old question. What that question really is doing is it's, it's blaming God for all the things that are going wrong. Placing the blame at God's feet rather than any of our responses in that process. We see this biblically as well. It's our human tendency from the very beginning to blame other people for our own wrong. You see it with Adam in the very beginning. God shows up on the scene after, after uh, the fall and, and Adam says, it's this, it's this woman you gave me. It's her fault. And Eve's like, it's the serpent's fault. Like, it's not my fault. You see this with Moses when he blames God for the Israelites' problems in the wilderness. You see it just a few chapters later when the Israelites blame Moses and God ultimately for bringing them out of Egypt. They're like, we would have been better off as slaves than we are here in the desert. You see Saul blaming David. You see Ahab blaming Elijah. You see Joram blaming Elisha. The Pharisees blamed parents for their kids' ailments. When someone was blind, like, well, who sinned, them or their parents? Like, the blame was always shifted off to others. It's, it's a common reality of our human nature. And often that blame ends up towards God as we face the temptations that naturally arrive with trials. So whether you have a paper Bible, a phone Bible, or following along on the screen, let's take a look at the small but powerful book of James, which is right near the end of your Bible, and follow along as a reader passage for today. And James 1, 13 through 18 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and gift and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a different uh, kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let me pray. Jesus, we just thank you for your word. Thank you for the, the book of James. Thank you for um, his life and his testimony that he wrote down for us in this process. Lord, thank you for the words you have in scripture. I pray, that you, Lord, that you'd speak through them. That it be your words, not mine, Lord. I pray that you would... Yeah, just fill me with your spirit, Lord, and help me to be sensitive to where you would have our time today. Lord, if there's things from you, may they be remembered. If there's things from me, let, they be, let them be forgotten, Lord. We just thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that it brings life. The fact that you speak towards the situations we go through in life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as we look at this first section, really the point James is making is this idea that temptation ultimately rises from within. It says, let no one say when, he's, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. When sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And I think the first thing to note here is James' use of when. As you see, it's not a if we're tempted. It's a when we're tempted. And as we know from these past handful of verses that Don looked through last week, he talked a lot about trials. And then he makes this shift here to this idea of temptation and linking those two in a way that temptation will arise as we face trials. Temptation of how we respond in any given moment will arise as we face trials. It's a common human reality to face temptation as we face trials. And trials and temptations seem to go hand in hand. But I think one of the misconceptions I think can be happening here is that oftentimes we use those two words interchangeably. We talked about like temptations and trials. We use them almost interchangeably, but they're not. Trials are really the, the, the circumstances which we're in, that God does allow and God does ordain. But temptation is the things that arise in those trials that it really are, it's our bent towards sin, our bent towards evil in that process. And it's how we respond in the midst of those trials. Trials must be endured. Temptations are to be avoided. And what makes part of this challenging and why I think we tend to use these things interchangeably is that the Greek word, uh, pirasmos, is actually the exact same word for both trials and temptations. But what the, as they translate it in English, they know the difference based on the context of what's going around uh, in those surrounding verses. And you see the language kind of shifts from 2 to 12 versus now, where it shifts from this idea of like enduring to the idea of avoiding. And there's distinct differences, but they go hand in hand. So to further clarify this, these distinctions, I want to give you a few examples to kind of illustrate that. Let's say you have a coworker who you really just don't get along with and is kind of a bully. That's a circumstance that God allows in your life. He's ordained in your life and maybe a trial you're facing. But it gives you the opportunity to respond to that temptation or a temptation might be to respond in sinful ways. We have a choice there to respond in sinful way or God-honoring way. 
so that temptation that arises within you towards sin or anger comes from within you, not from the trial itself. Or perhaps someone moves in next door to you who is just abundantly wealthy. Having a rich neighbor is a circumstance that God allowed in that process. But the trial, or the temptation, I mean, sorry, correct that, the temptation towards covetousness in that moment arises from within ourselves, not from the trial itself. So what James is saying here is that though God allows and ordains trials, temptation arises within ourselves, not from him. And since God allows and ordains the circumstances in our lives, some would posit that therefore, naturally, God is responsible for those temptations that arise out of those trials. That he, by transitive property, is to blame in that moment. And James anticipates this response. You see in, his, in the verse there that, God, that he addresses exactly that. He even quotes this idea of, I'm being tempted by God. And James really squashes that argument right in the beginning. This is common. This was a common thought, as common a thought for James' audience as it was for, as is for us today. Even Homer's Odyssey, Zeus complains, it's incredible how easily human beings blame the gods and believe us to be the source of their troubles. When it is their own wickedness and stupidity that brings upon their sorrows more severe than any which destiny would assign. So this is a common reality in the, in, the, in the theology of people then, and it's a common reality in our lives and hearts today. To blame others, to blame God in that process. But how does James respond to the question he anticipates? He says, rather than trying to look at it from the end, tracing it back to the start, we have to look at it, what absolutely can't be true, and therefore that leaves with what is true beyond that. So James says that the notion that God tempts others, that God tempts or causes our sinful reaction is a logical impossibility. What he's saying here is that because God cannot be tempted, he literally is untemptable, therefore the temptation cannot logically come from him in the first place. And since God is completely good, he knows he tempts no one. James actually employs a rare kind of verbal uh, adjective here that, that literally means God is untemptable in that process. He's unsusceptible to evil. He's unable to have temptation. There's no appeal to him. There's no desire for him to be tempted towards evil. And because we have a completely good God, logically speaking, temptation cannot arise from him. So it must have a different source, source namely within us. And as much as we want to put the blame elsewhere, the reality is no one causes you to sin except for you. No one causes me to sin except for me. We alone make the choice of how we respond to the circumstances we face. Each of us alone makes the choice to sin any given moment. And this also flies in the face of modern philosophy. Modern philosophy generally teaches nowadays that human nature, by, in generality, is, is basically good. But see, the Bible completely contradicts that idea. The Bible flies right in the face of that, even from the very beginning. Ever since Adam and Eve, human nature is broken and incredibly capable and really has a proclivity towards evil. Any good in this world is through the common grace that God provides but it's not our natural bent. 
I love telling the story of uh, when my, my daughter Elena was about six months old. Uh, we were sitting in our living room. And I remember her, um, she was just starting to crawl, starting to get around the room a little bit. I remember her starting to crawl towards one of the electrical outlets in the wall. About halfway there, she, she turns, looks back at me, shakes her head no, and then beelines it for the outlet. No one had to teach her to sin. No one had to teach her that bent towards a response of, even though she knew she wasn't supposed to, doing it anyway. And all we have to do is not only look at our own human experiences, human experiences, but also look at human history for further evidence of this idea. Every generation has their examples. Just the human capacity and proclivity towards evil. From wars, to slavery, to genocide, to Nazi Germany, we don't have to look far to see the capability and proclivity towards evil inside of all humans at all time. And I think it's easy to look at those extreme examples and say, well, yeah, that, that's, that's those people over there. That's not me. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, even if it's not major ways, we all have a bent towards tempted to take the easy way, the, the evil way at times. And as much as we want to believe that humanity is good as modern philosophy talks about, it just continually proves otherwise. All I have to do is look at the past 10 years, our, 20 years in our country to see that the tragedy that we face again and again. Human nature continually proves our bent towards evil, not good. And then in verse 14, James turns his focus to the process of human temptation. So he's kind of proven his point of like, temptation can't from, come from God because he is good and it's a logical impossibility. And therefore, if it does reside somewhere else or it starts within us, what does that process look like? He paints this picture for us in verse 14, it says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It begins with a simple illustration. He's talking here, if you're a hunter or a fisherman, you know this idea of like, you cast the bait out there and the fish sees the bait and like, oh, that looks good. I'm going to go after that. It's arise within himself to go and want to pursue that evil thing. And just like fish you're hunting, there's this bait that's thrown in our minds. And we mentally give it credence. We mentally choose to follow it. We're convinced to, to run after that, to enticed by it. And if we allow that desire to lure us and entice us and give it a foothold in our minds, it gives birth to sin. And sin, ultimately, as we know, leads to death. And as we read this passage, I can't help but think of Paul's words in Romans 7. You see this Romans 7's battle raging within type of mindset. You see this, man, I see... I see the good I want to do, and I'm not doing it. I see the evil I don't want to do, and yet I'm doing that. You see that nature that we all have, this battle towards temptation exists within us. We still find ourselves doing the evil thing we don't want to do in that process. And Paul is illustrating this reality in James 7, and James is echoing the same idea here. And Paul echoes James' conclusion about sin in Romans 6.23, where he says, The wages of sin is death. A consistent theme we see throughout Scripture is this idea that sin leads to death. I mean, it doesn't mean you're going to like croak over and die the minute you sin, but that's ultimate spiritual separation, long-term death apart from God. And I think what makes this challenging to see sometimes is it's very obvious, this is the end product, when things are at its worst. When we see that like 
Nazi Germany type situation. But often though, the temptation, the luring, the enticement, it's subtle. It's subtle. And it's, it's often in the pride of our own minds even. It's not like the devil just comes out and says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. You see this like big chain? Go ahead, take it. Now wrap yourself in it and tie yourself up with it. Go ahead. No, it's much more, much more subtle than that. What happens? He, he gives us a link. I'm like, oh, that's a, that's, a good, that's a good link. And over time, as he gives us a link, then another link, and then another link, we build our own chain. And next thing we know, we're trapped inside the chain without even realizing it. We believe lies. We aren't as vigilant in combating the lie. We gave a compromise here and a little foothold here, there, and next thing you know, we're so far down the path that we don't even know how we got there. Someone doesn't just jump to like robbing a bank or committing adultery or even committing murder. But it, it's little compromises and enticement and luring that we let the hook sink and we keep getting dragged further down into, into our own evil desires. We allow those evil desires to fester and stew in the privacy of our own minds till we're trapped, and it comes out in sin, ultimately in death. We cannot blame God for our temptation as it arises from within us, and we alone are responsible for our sinful actions. And James doubles down on this same idea as his explanation and reasoning of why temptation can't possibly come from God as we go into these next couple of verses in 16 and 17. In verse 16, it says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, which whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So James starts his plea, really with just this, this picture of, brothers, don't be deceived. It's this plea you hear his yearning from his heart of these dear brothers he, he loves and knows. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived to think that this temptation can come from God. It arises within us. And how we address that, because that varies greatly. He reminds them again of the, his care for them. And as a brother, he too is putting himself on equal, put, equal, equal playing field with them. He knows what they're susceptible to, he's susceptible to as well. He says, brothers, don't be deceived. Don't believe the lie that God is the one tempting you. James already stated that God could not be a tempter because it's a logical impossibility. And here he continues the logical argument that God cannot be the tempter because in his nature he is good. And what does his goodness look like? That every good gift, every perfect gift is from above. His goodness is shown by the giving of good gifts and of perfect gifts. And did you catch that? Every, he repeats it twice, every good gift. All good derives from God, the source of goodness. Common grace abounds in our world, and I could, I could take the rest of today and many, many, many more days to give examples of the common grace and the goodness that God provides in little ways in our lives and in this world. God cannot possibly give temptation towards evil because God only gives good and perfect gifts. The Greek word here for perfect is this word teleon, which means perfect, complete, whole, without blemish. Thus, God's giving and his gifts are comprehensively good. 
the logical argument that James is making is that nothing evil possibly could come from God. Only good things come from God. And we see how the psalmists echo the same thoughts in Psalm 18 and 19. Psalm 18 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's ways are perfect. The Lord is true. The law of the Lord is perfect. His word is sure. Only good and perfect gifts come from God. And God's gifts are perfect because the giver is perfect. As you talked about earlier, God has no hint of evil inside of him. He's only good. Those perfect gifts come down from above, from the Father of light. And one of the things interesting about this, this term, that, this title that James gives him, the Father of lights, this is the only place in all of Scripture it's used. <clears throat> it's the only place in all of Scripture that God uses this idea, or that James uses this idea of Father of lights. And whenever God is described as Father, which he is often, it echoes back to this idea of him being the creator. He gives life. He gives birth to these things. And lights, what's used throughout Scripture and used the time, as you can probably imagine, is used as a descriptor of these heavenly lights, things like the sun, the moon, the stars. And James, again, is evoking the hearer to the nature of God. He created even the heavenly lights. He provides all light to the world, all goodness to the world. And he uses what we know about these lights to provide a contrast to God. What we know about the lights and the stars and the sun is that as we sit here on earth, this moon, it wanes and waxes. The sun rises and sets. The stars move through the sky. But yet God, on the other hand, has no variation and no shadow due to change. God's goodness is always at high noon with zero shadow of any hesitancy or any even spot or blemish of, of evil. It was common in ancient times and still common today. We give credence and power to things like horoscopes. Look to the scar, stars and attribute power to them. That they have responsibility for how and they dictate how we act and respond. But James's point is ultimately God controls all things which we wrongfully attribute power, including the heavenly beings, where they change. He created them. He put them in their place. He, he moves them. Yet God does not. God does not change. He has power over and supervises and controls political forces, economic forces, fate, the stars, whatever unreliable thing we want to put our trust in, they all bow to the true king on the throne of the Father. An old music teacher once asked in a greeting, What's the good news today? And the old man, without saying a word, got up, walked across the room, picked up a tuning fork, struck it. As the note sounded, he said, that's an A. It's an A today. It was an A 5,000 years ago. It'll be an A 10,000 years from today. The soprano upstairs sings off key. The tenor across the hall is out of tune. He struck the note again. That's an A, and that's the good news for today. And as much as a, a note is always the same, even more so is the God, the Father of lights, who's unchanging, his 
good in totality and comprehensively. There's no shadow ever of any even blemish or hint of evil. God's goodness is completely reliable and trustworthy. It's consistent. It's unwavering. It's unchangeable. It's who he is. His goodness is who he is, and he cannot be anything but good. And James gives the best example of that in verse 18. God's best gift is verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Not only is God's goodness true in the macro of the universe, but it's true in the microcosm of our own experience. Of God's own will, of his own choosing, he brought, past tense, already done, brought us forth. The lang- he brought us forth. His language of birthing, again, by the word of truth. And how did he bring us forth? By the word of truth. This echoes back to, you can probably think of, the Gospel of John in John 1, where he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John continually uses this alliteration of this, of this idea that the Word is Jesus and the Word is truth. And James picks up that same idea here to look at this idea of, the, of God's own will, his own choosing. He brought us forth by the Word of truth. God's own choosing. He chose to bring you and I near to him. And it's the ultimate picture of his goodness. I want to read, I read earlier the, the first half of Romans 6.23, but I want to come back to that verse again because the second half is what holds that promise. Romans 6.23 states, of his, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift to God's goodness on display is his giving of Jesus on behalf of our sin. Our sin earns us death. It arises within us and it earns us death. But yet in God's goodness, his own choosing, he sent his son to came and live the perfect life on our behalf. He died the death we deserve to offer us relationship with the Father once again. The free gift of God, his goodness, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For everyone and anyone who recognizes their need and puts their faith and trust in him and what he did on our behalf. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Everything in salvation was and is of God. We are God's people because of the total act of goodness and grace rooted in God's undeserved, unprompted goodness. And one of the reasons I love this passage is that James is oftentimes quoted. It's, it's a very common book to use in, in quoting it. But the true nature of this book really can be twisted pretty easily. It's really easy to look at the, the book of James and all the heavy language of what we have to do and come away with this idea that like, it's, it's this idea of faith plus works. But verses like this in the, in the middle of James is often overlooked point back and make it so easy to see that James preaches the same gospel as every other author in the New Testament. And I think if we're someone who can tend towards a legalistic bent and think like, oh, we have to do this, we have to do that for God to earn his favor, to, for him to love us, this verse flies in the face of that. Of his own will, 
He brought us forth by the word of truth. It has nothing to do with what we, how we respond and what we do. And it confirms that James is preaching the same gospel, the same heart. James used all the commands of what he's saying in the book as a natural outflow of us getting this. As we see and realize the goodness of his grace and the free gift he push, pushes upon, puts upon us and allows us to have, we want to respond. We want to respond and, and, and doing these things that James talks about. And so what does all, all this mean for us today? It means that my big idea here is that God's perfect gift changes our perspective. God's perfect gift he gives us in salvation, it changes our perspective on temptations, it changes our perspective on trials, and it changes our perspective on all the other commands he gives us throughout this book. It rests in the goodness of the gospel. Jesus changes everything about who we are, our desires, and what we want in this life. And all of these things that James talks about becomes the natural outflow of a life changed by grace. I mentioned earlier the Greek word teleon. And worship team, you can join me here. I mentioned the word, Greek word teleon, perfect, in verse 17. And James is use, uses a literary device here to connect us back to earlier in the book of James. In verse 4, he also uses this word teleon. It says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He's using what the, the literary term is called an inclusio, kind of bookending a section together, talking about this idea that like, ultimately we see as we look back towards verse 4 in the light of verse 17, because of God's perfection, because of God's goodness, we therefore know verse 4 is assured of us. We know that it will come to pass. We know that we will see a day perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That perfect gift God gave us in Jesus ultimately secures that we will see that perfection. Ultimately, we'll see that true in heaven one day. I don't believe we'll necessarily be perfect here on earth. I don't think the Bible would speak very clearly that we're not. But it is a guarantee of our future inheritance in heaven that we will see perfection, completion, lacking nothing one day. And what it does is it changes our perspective on the trials we face, the temptations we face today. So no matter our current situation, whether health, job, relational, school, etc., we can rest and trust in his goodness that he will walk alongside with us. He's already provided the gospel to us. He's provided the, the best gift we could ever have. And if he can provide the best gift, the most important gift, how much more does he also want to bless us in the small things? And because of our righteousness has already been purchased by Christ, as we grow in more Christ-likeness, the effects and the lure and the enticement of temptation lessen over time. We're no longer bound by those chains of temptation, but the Spirit enables us to endure trials, to avoid temptations. Richard Foster puts it this way, for the Christian, heaven is not the goal, it's the destination. The goal is we are formed, that Christ be formed in you. The gospel secures the end of the story. We know that's where the destination leads. And that provides hope even in the midst of the trials and the temptations we face, the darkest times. And the gospel enables us to practically follow the commands that James lists out. We live out this book, we live out the commands of this book, not in our own power, but through the power of the Holy Spirit that he provides to us. 
knowing that we obey and we follow the commands because of the gratitude we have of his goodness in the gospel. So the big idea, again, is who God is and what he's done changes our perspective. Let me pray, and then we're going to transition into communion. God, thank you. You have brought us forth by the word of truth through the body and blood of Jesus that we will remember here shortly. We can have confidence that we can avoid temptations, endure trials through the power of the Holy Spirit that you have given us as a down payment of our future inheritance. It is through the blood of Jesus we've been brought near to you. It's through the blood of Jesus that we can see clearly who we were without you and celebrate who we are in you. Thank you because of who you are and what you've done. You change our perspective in everything we do. Amen. And one of those good and perfect gifts that God provides to us is the blessing to be able to join together in communion. And here at Grace, we perform open communion, which means if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we invite you to join with us in celebrating communion together. But if you haven't, take, if you haven't uh, placed your faith in Jesus, perhaps today I would ask you to take a moment to ponder what God would have for you from the message today. Perhaps today is the day of your salvation. Have you seen your need before the Father? And you seeing his goodness on display on the cross? All it takes is to pray, acknowledge your need before God, and accept what Jesus did on your behalf. And much like our passage today reminds us, communion is both a looking forward and a looking back. It's looking back and remembering the blood of Jesus, the broken body, the blood spilled for you. Remembering what it cost him. It cost him his son. Remembering the pain he endured for you and for me. It's through Jesus we've been brought forth of his own will. And we see the best example of God's goodness to us. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And simultaneously, it's looking forward So looking forward to the foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation where we'll join together with perfection, without spot or blemish. And we'll gather together with the Father, with the Son, in perfect unity. Taking communion together as a body is a foretaste of the age to come. So in a moment, the band's going to begin with some instrumental music and give you some time to remember what Jesus endured for you. Just take a moment to both look backwards, remember, and look forward in hope of the promise to come. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We get to remember you, remember your promise, remember your goodness to us through communion. We remember your broken body, your shed blood that you gave for us and your goodness to us. And we thank you, Lord, that changes everything. It changes our perspective. It changes our life. It changes our motivations. It changes our desires. Lord, may we desire to follow you and take these commands of James not as a do this or else, but a we get to live out the gospel through these commands. And let us also look forward, Lord, to the day to come. Let's remember the, the marriage supper that awaits us in Revelation where will there be no more tears and no more sadness, no more trials, no more temptations.
but we'll be in relationship perfectly with you. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for who you are. May we remember that today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.